Let us pray. O God of life and love, You are full of grace and truth. Your mercies are new each day. Your grace abounds even to the chief of sinners. You are the architect and builder of creation. You do all things well. All you have made reveals your wisdom. You are the Savior from sin and death. When your servant Job was in the midst of trial and great suffering, he asked, if a man dies, shall he live again? And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your son, you have answered that question with a resounding yes, the dead shall live again. You have raised your son from the dead and in union with him, you will raise us from the dead as well. Even now we share in his resurrection life. And so renew us this day in your service, O Lord, that we might live to your glory, that we might live in your glory for all eternity. We long for communion with you, O God. Take away all the sins that ensnare and entangle us in our journey towards the new Jerusalem and give us yourself and your gifts even today that we may know you, O God, our Father, and the one you sent, your eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the working of your Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, and who pours your love out into our hearts. We give you thanks and praise. We honor and adore you, the God of all mercies, the God of our salvation. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, help us to remember that day two millennia ago when the breaking news was the good news, the news that Christ is risen. May that news ring out loud and clear to us today. May we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Christ the Lord is risen. May we put our whole trust in Him. May we see Your goodness and love in Him. This we pray in His name. Amen. Genesis 22 has always been a scandalous story. How could God command Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son, his only son, Isaac? There's no doubt that's what God tells Abraham to do, to take Isaac up on the mountain and slaughter him and consume his whole corpse in the fires of the altar. Readers of the story often picture Abraham struggling and agonizing over God's command and then finally deciding that he has to obey, that he must obey, no matter how absurd or irrational it seems. Certainly that's how Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, viewed the matter in his famous treatment of this chapter. He focused on Abraham's emotional reaction, what Abraham's emotional reaction must have been, the agony, the pain, the doubt, the struggle he must have felt. But it's interesting, when you read Genesis 22, there's none of that. There's none of that emotionalism in the biblical account. It does not focus on what Abraham felt, but what on, but on what Abraham did. We're not told about Abraham's inner turmoil. We're told about his obedience. We're not told about Abraham's conversation with Sarah about this, which I would imagine was pretty interesting. You know, the Lord told you to do what? We're not told about uh, Abraham protesting or raising questions the way he did when God threatened to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he interceded for the cities. There's none of that here. No pushback, no questioning. We're just told that Abraham obeyed right away. And indeed, this is a pattern throughout Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham away from his family and his homeland. And so Abraham gave up his past and obeyed. 
Here in Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to give up his only son, to give up his future. Abraham hears and obeys. In both those stories, God says to Abraham, go to the place I will show you. And Abraham is faithful in each case. Genesis 22.1 tells us this was a test, a test of Abraham's trust, a test Abraham obviously passed, even though he didn't end up having to sacrifice Isaac. But what does it all mean? What's, what's this story all about? Specifically, I think there are three questions that need answering here. Why does God give this command? Why does Abraham obey this command? And what could this possibly mean for us today? To understand why God gave this command, we have to go back to the beginning. Why is a story about child sacrifice in the Bible? Well, it's because all of God's promises focus on a child. A child who would be sacrificed. When Adam and Eve rebelled, God pronounced curses, ultimately the curse of death, fell upon them. But God also made a promise in Genesis 3. The promise of a child. The promise of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. Who would reverse the curse and bring blessing. Who would bring life out of death. But the first child born to Eve was Cain. He turned out to be not a savior, but a murderer. And so the search continued. Who would be this promised seed of the woman? Eventually, the world came to be filled with Cain's violent, self-serving men who lived lives of wickedness with the sole exception being Noah and his family. And so God, in judgment once again, brought a flood to destroy the whole earth with only Noah and his family being spared. Now, Noah had three sons. The whole human race, you could say, really started over with those sons. But none of them proved to be the promised seed. In fact, before long, the descendants of Noah were rebelling again. This time by building a tower to the heavens at Babel. God had promised, God's promise was for a man of heaven to descend and be born of a woman. But at Babel, man tried to ascend to heaven to make a name for himself. And so God comes down and confuses their languages. He, he breaks up. He confuses their language. He breaks up and scatters the human race. Out of that scattering, out of the aftermath of Babel, God in His grace chooses one man. And He says to this one man, through you the promised seed will come. And so now we've narrowed it down. The whole human race, all the families of the earth, it's been narrowed down to one family. Abraham's family will bring the promised seed into the world. Abraham's family will be the opposite of Babel. At Babel, they wanted to make a great name for themselves. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the earth and the stars in heaven. And through you, Abraham, the seed will come. And this seed will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. In fact, God changes his name to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. That name summarizes the promises God makes to him. He will have the seed who will bless all the families of the earth and his descendants will be as, as numerous as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. But there's a problem with the promise. A problem with the promise God makes to Abraham. 
When God makes this promise to Abraham, he had already been married for quite some time, and yet he and his wife Sarah had not yet had a child. Turns out his wife was barren. How can a man with a barren wife be a great father? How can a man with a, with, with a barren wife be father of a multitude? How can a man with a barren wife be the father of the seed? The years go by, and still there's no son, no seed, no Savior. There's this contradiction between God's promise and Abraham's predicament, between Abraham's name and his situation. The great father of a multitude has no children. At one point, Abraham even wondered aloud if his servant Eliezer would be the seed. But God said, no, the seed will come from you as your offspring. At another point, Abraham heeded the bad advice of his wife and slept with her maidservant Hagar. And she had a son named Ishmael. But God made it clear he was not the seed. The seed would be born of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And so the years went by. And Abraham and Sarah became very, very old. Way past the years of childbearing. Until finally God showed up one day and said, Now is the time. Now is the time to have the son. And when Sarah heard this news, all she could do was laugh. She said, I am worn out and my husband is old. How can I have a son? How can I give to Abraham a son? But God said back to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? And sure enough, about nine months later, a son was born. Born not of the flesh, because their flesh was old and weak, but born of the Spirit a son born of grace. And this son was named Isaac, meaning laughter, because Sarah had laughed when she heard this promise. And this old couple was now full of laughter. They were full of joy. Sarah laughed when she heard the news. She isaac that's what the name Isaac means. It means laughter. Sarah isaac when she heard she'd have a child. And now she gets her Isaac, her laughter in the form of this son. But after the child gets older... God shows up and says something that's no laughing matter, something that's not funny at all, something completely unexpected. God comes to Abraham and calls out to him, and Abraham says, here I am, words he'll repeat later in this chapter, words that show his readiness, his eagerness to obey. Abraham will hear the Lord and do what the Lord says. The Lord calls out to him. He says, here I am. Verse 2, the Lord says, take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering or as an ascension offering on the mountain, I tell you. Wow, right? God says to Abraham, put your joy on the altar. Put laughter on the altar. Slaughter, laughter. Sacrifice, joy. Put his his corpse on the altar. Drive a knife into him and consume his body with flames on the altar. Note the threefold description of Isaac. He's called Abraham's son, Abraham's one and only son, Abraham's beloved son. It's as if God wants to make the point really, really clear to Abraham. He looks Abraham straight in the eye and he says, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding here. You know exactly what I'm asking you to do. That special child, that miracle child, that child that is your laughter and your joy. Yes, that child. Take him 
and sacrifice him. That child you waited so long for, your one and only beloved child, take that child and sacrifice him. Well, what will Abraham do? The next verse tells us, verse 3, Abraham rose up early the next morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the offering and went to the place God told him. Abraham obeyed straight away. No hesitating, no arguing, no questioning. Simple obedience. And on the third day of their journey, the place was in sight. And so Abraham left his servants behind. He carried the fire and the knife while Isaac carried the wood. And the two of them went to the place of sacrifice. Kierkegaard was disturbed by Abraham's obedience. And he concluded Abraham's faith must have been a blind, irrational leap into the dark. And that's how a lot of people think of faith. That's how a lot of people view faith. It's this leap into the dark. You know, there's what we know, what's reasonable, and then there's faith, what we don't know, what's irrational or unreasonable. Faith is the opposite of reason and logic. It cares nothing for evidence. Faith is this flying leap that you take. But actually, there are several clues here that that is not what's going on with Abraham's faith. He's actually acting in a rational way. He's acting according to truth and according to evidence. His faith is not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. He is both faithful and reasonable. There is a logic to Abraham's faith. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, we read this morning, Hebrews 11 tells us how Abraham reasoned. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Well, by faith in what? By faith in God's promise. Abraham Believed God's promise, Hebrews tells us. He believed that when he offered up Isaac on the altar, that God would raise him from the dead. But I would say the writer of Hebrews is not engaging in speculation. This is not conjecture. He's actually reading the Genesis narrative closely, and that's how he knows how Abraham was reasoning. Look at what Abraham says in verse 5 to his servants. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then we will come again to you. Abraham's resurrection faith, his Easter faith, if you will, is right there in the text. The verbs are all in the plural in the Hebrew. Not all English translations capture this. It's sometimes obscured. But there it is. Abraham says, we will go. We will worship. We will return. But how did Abraham reach this conclusion? How did he reason this out? What's the logic that drives this? How did he have this unswerving, unwavering faith in Isaac's resurrection? Well, there are several lines of argument that must have led Abraham to this confidence, to this rock-solid conviction that Isaac would return from the grave. Consider some of these. First, there's God's covenant. There's God's promise to him. God said again and again, the promise will be fulfilled through Isaac. Isaac is the seed. He's now the hope of the world. He carries God's promises in himself. 
He can't die for good until he has heirs of his own to carry forward the promise into the future, to continue the line of the Messiah. If everything hinges on Isaac, as Abraham knows it does, then his life can't end here. Even if he dies, that can't be the end. God would have to raise him up. There's no other way for God's promises to be fulfilled. If Isaac really is the seed of the woman, there can be no question here. And again, God's made it very, very clear. Isaac is the promised seed. At one point, Abraham earlier had said, Oh Lord, that Ishmael may live before you. And God says, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant with his offspring after him. Abraham is simply believing God's promise. In, that's in Genesis 17. In Genesis 21, God repeats himself to Abraham. He says, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. In other words, the seed line runs through Isaac. In him, God's promise to Abraham. To give to Abraham a global family. A family that is a great multitude that fills the earth. In him, this promise will be fulfilled. Therefore, Abraham reasoned. If Isaac dies, there's no way he can stay dead because he's the seed. He has to have heirs. God has said he'll crush the serpent's head. He'll fill the earth with blessing. He'll bless all the families of the earth through my offspring, through my seed. If Isaac hasn't had kids yet, there's no way he can stay dead. As God lives, so Isaac must live as well. There's no other way. So Abraham's got God's promise to guide him in this. But there's another line of evidence that Abraham no doubt used to reason his way to this conclusion as well. He could cling to God's promises about Isaac because Abraham had already seen God's resurrecting power at work in his own life. He'd already seen God raise the dead, so to speak. Sarah's womb had been a tomb. She was as good as dead. Abraham was as good as dead. They were too old. She was too barren. How could they bring forth new life? And yet God did it. God did it. He resurrected Sarah's womb. Abraham is already familiar with God's power over life and death, with God's ability to bring life out of nothing. In fact, this is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4. We didn't read this one this morning, so let me read this starting in verse 17, Romans 4. Paul says, Abraham trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. That's actually how Paul is describing Isaac's conception and birth. God giving life to the dead and calling into existence things that do not exist. Paul goes on, he says, Abraham, in hope, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb because he was fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. And Paul actually in Romans 4 goes on to link Abraham's faith, the faith that sustained Abraham, with our faith in the God who has raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, Abraham's faith is a resurrection faith, and Christian faith is a resurrection faith. But the example of resurrection faith that Paul points to in Romans 4 is the conception of Isaac. 
Isaac being brought forth from nothing. Life coming from death. And this is why Abraham was able to pass the test of faith. He reasoned his way to this conclusion. And it's why God confirms the blessing to him and to his seed afterward. After Abraham has offered up Isaac, God speaks to him and says this, by myself I have sworn, this is picking up in verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham was given a test, a test of his trust, and he passed the test. And so God reaffirms his covenant, swearing an oath by himself to do these things. God's oath is a promise unto death. Even if he has to die to keep his promises, he'll do it. Whatever it takes, God's going to keep this promise. An oath is an unto death promise. Now, we've seen why God commanded this. We've seen why Abraham obeyed this command. But what does it all mean for us? What does this have to do with us today? Well, I hope it's already becoming clear, but I want to point out a couple of other things here you should consider. First, kids. (laughs) Kids, let me talk to you for just a minute. Uh, You might read this story and you might wonder, wow, (laughs) is God ever going to ask my parents to sacrifice me? Well, Uh, What do you think your dad would do if God said to take your child and sacrifice your child on the mountain? You might wonder, you know, dad, would you offer me up? Would you sacrifice me the way Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac? Well, kids, let me put your mind to rest. Uh, You don't have to worry about that happening. God will never again give such a command. What happens here is totally and utterly unique. God had bound himself to Isaac as the seed, as the one through whom the Messiah would come into the world, through his line. But you know what? That promised seed has now come. The true Isaac has come. The last Isaac, the final Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And so this kind of thing will never happen again. So, kids, you don't have to worry. You're not going to be in the position of Isaac. Your dad's not going to ever be in the position of Abraham. Thank God for that, right? But let me tell you something else, kids. In another sense, your parents have already sacrificed you to God. Kids, understand, your parents sacrificed you to God when they brought you to be baptized. That's when God killed you and brought you to life as a new creation. That's when God killed you in the old Adam and raised you up as a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. See, kids, you belong to God. And now you're to make your whole life an act of worship. You're to be a living sacrifice. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice to God. This is what Sam and Ashley did this morning. They sacrificed little Liam to the Lord. They sacrificed Liam to God today. Liam died to the old world and rose again into the new. Born again of water and the Spirit. Liam was dead and now he's alive. 
And we expect little Liam to live as a Christian from here on out, just as we expect all of you kids to live as Christians all your days. That's one thing this story means for us. But let me tell you something else this story means for us today. There's another layer of meaning here for us today. This story is the gospel. This story is Good Friday and Easter wrapped together 2,000 years ahead of time. It is the gospel in preview form, the gospel in types and shadows, the gospel, the drama of the gospel acted out on the stage ahead of time. And really it's also obvious when you start to see the parallels. The parallels are astounding. Consider some of these. How Abraham and Isaac act out the gospel. Isaac, of course, is supernaturally conceived, even as Jesus was supernaturally conceived. Isaac was born of a barren woman. Jesus was born of a virgin. The ultimate barren womb would be the womb of a virgin. Jesus is supernaturally conceived, even as Isaac was. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, his beloved son. That's how Isaac is described when God comes to him. But those are all descriptors that are given of Jesus in the New Testament. Think of John 3.16. God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There it is. The same language used of Isaac. At Jesus' baptism, Jesus is declared by the Father to be the beloved son. The same kind of language that's used of Isaac. See, God the Father does not ask Abraham to do anything he's not going to do himself. Whatever agony Abraham endured contemplating the offering of his beloved and unique son, the Heavenly Father would endure to an even greater degree as he contemplates offering his only begotten and beloved son. Even as all of Abraham's love concentrated on Isaac, So God the Father loves His Son with an infinite love. But that means giving Him up. Giving Him up to death entails infinite loss, an infinite cost the Father pays. Abraham is told to go to the mountains of Moriah. But later on we find out in 2 Chronicles, this is where Solomon built the temple, which means it's where all the sacrifices were offered, which means all of those animal sacrifices offered at the temple were really symbolic of the sacrifice of the Isaac who was to come. But you know that temple mountain, that area known as Moriah, that includes the temple mountain, but that region also includes what we call Mount Calvary or Golgotha. Jesus is crucified basically right next to the temple. You could see straight into the temple from where Jesus was crucified. It's all part of the same mountain range. It's the same place. In other words, Abraham offered Isaac in the very vicinity where Jesus would be crucified 2,000 years later. It's the same place. It was a three-day journey for Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was as good as dead for three days and he was raised up, figuratively speaking, on the third day. And of course, Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day. Abraham carried the knife and fire. He would do the slaying even as the father would do the smiting. On the cross, we're told in Isaiah 53, the father would smite him. We're told in Zechariah that the father would strike his son on the cross. Abraham carries the knife and the fire, the instruments of death. But Isaac carries the wood, or literally it's the tree. So that's what wood is, just a cut up tree. 
And of course, Jesus carries the wood or the tree of the cross. Abraham is playing the part of God the Father. Isaac is playing the part of God the Son, carrying his cross, carrying the wood. Notice, too, that if Isaac is old enough to carry the wood, he's old enough to resist his old man. And yet he doesn't. Through this whole ordeal, as they journey together, and remember, it's just the two of them. They leave behind everybody else. It's just the two of them going up the mountain, alone, together. Isaac is old enough to resist. He's old enough to resist being bound to the altar. But what does he do? He submits to his father's will. I'm sure that Isaac would have liked for that cup to pass from him. He might have even said, Father, is there another way? But in the end, he submits to his father's will. Isaac says, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. Abraham and Isaac, the two are acting as one. The two are one. You've heard me say the cross is a Trinitarian event. The cross is an event that takes place in the life of the Trinity between the Father and the Son. Father and Son working together at the cross to accomplish our salvation. Well, here with Abraham and Isaac, you have a beautiful picture of this. Abraham and Isaac working together, the two as one. As painful as it is for both of them, they are in sync. They are in harmony. They're acting together. Then there's that question that uh, Isaac asked, that freighted question before they journey up the mountain. My father, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? That's the question God's people will ask for centuries. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world? Where is the lamb? That's Isaac's question. Where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham replies, God will provide himself for the offering, my son. In the Hebrew, there's some ambiguity. Does Abraham say God himself will provide? That may be what he meant. But it could also be read cryptically, prophetically. God will provide himself for the offering. In other words, God will give himself. He will put himself forward as the one to be offered. And of course, that's ultimately what happens on the cross where God Himself in human flesh becomes the offering. God puts Himself forward as the sacrificial lamb in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And when John the Baptist in John chapter 1 sees Jesus, what does he cry out? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The Lamb who is God who has come to take our sins away. He's come to bring blessing to the world, to take away the curse and bring life, to take away death and give blessing. Isaac asked, Father, where's the lamb for the offering? John the Baptist finally answers Isaac's question 2,000 years later. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Genesis 22, just before Abraham plunges the knife into Isaac, the angel of the Lord, who is most likely a pre-incarnate form of Jesus himself, a pre-incarnation form of the Son, the angel of the Lord interrupts Abraham. He intercepts Abraham before he can kill his son and slaughter him for the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham from heaven and stops him. 
and points him to a ram that is caught in a thorn bush, in a thorn bush of all places. Thorns, of course, going back to Genesis 3, are a sign of the curse. This is a ram that's been cursed, so to speak, that's wearing the curse, that's caught in the curse. A ram that will bear the curse as a substitutionary sacrifice, even as Jesus will wear a crown of thorns, bearing the curse for us as he goes to the cross. Jesus was caught in the thorns of the curse for our sake that he might bear the curse for us. He took Isaac's place as the sacrificial son. So even as Abraham pictures God the Father, so Isaac pictures Jesus the Son. It's all here in Genesis 22. In this story, we truly have one of the most beautiful prophetic pictures of the Gospel. A foreshadowing of the very story the Gospel writers will tell us two millennia later. We have a foreshadowing here right down to the details of what the Father and Son would do. In this exact same place, at Calvary 2,000 years later. Now, of course, Isaac, not being sinless and not being divine, couldn't be the final sacrifice. He could not be the true and final seed of the woman. But he shows us the truth of the one who will be. He points ahead to the greater Isaac, the final Isaac. And when that final Isaac comes, the fatal strike will not be interrupted. The fatal blow will be given. The knife of divine wrath will be plunged into him and he will die. The righteous for the unrighteous. But on the third day, even as Abraham figuratively received Isaac back from the dead, the greater Isaac will rise truly and bodily from the dead to fulfill all the promises God made to Abraham. And so through him, the head of the serpent is crushed. In him, all the nations will be blessed. In him, the covenant is fulfilled. Abraham, Father Abraham did a great thing. But God the Father has topped Father Abraham. Isaac did a great thing. But the new Isaac has done something even better. For this new Isaac was truly dead and now is alive again. Abraham named that place Jehovah-Jireh, meaning the Lord will provide. Abraham knew what had happened there with him and with Isaac was a type, a picture of something greater to come, a greater provision God would make. It all pointed ahead to when God would provide the miraculous birth, the seed, the lamb, the sacrifice, the resurrection. And the message of Easter, of course, is that it has all happened. The Lord has provided. Whatever needs you have to be right with God, the Lord has provided. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham looked ahead to my day and rejoiced. Abraham looked ahead to Jesus' day and he Isaaced, he laughed, he rejoiced because he knew what Jesus would do. When did Abraham see ahead to Jesus' day? I would say it was right there, that day on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. That's when Abraham could look ahead and see into the future and see the provision God would make. And because of Jesus, we can all, Isaac, together. We can all laugh and rejoice together because we have Jesus, the crucified and risen one. 
And in having Jesus, we have it all. After Abraham offers Isaac, God rewards him. God reiterates his promise to Abraham. He says, because you have not spared your only son, because you have not withheld your only son, I will keep my covenant with you. Because he was willing to give up Isaac, God knew Abraham would give him anything. But it's so interesting to me, at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul takes that same logic and he turns it around. Paul writes there, if God the Father, if God did not spare his only son, He did not withhold His only Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not with Him freely give us all things? Paul's using the same logic towards God that God used toward Abraham. If the Father has given us His only Son, He's not going to withhold anything from us. If He's freely and graciously given you His Son, He's not going to withhold anything that you might need. He'll give you everything. He's given you His only Son, His beloved Son, His only begotten Son. And that means everything God has is yours. There's nothing you could need He won't give you. If He's given you the greater gift, the greatest gift of all, surely He'll give you any lesser gift you might need. God could look at Abraham and what He did on Mount Moriah and say to Abraham, you gave me your Son, and so I know You love me. I know you'll give me anything. And now we can look at God and we can say, God, you gave us your son. You gave us your son. And so we know now you will give us anything. And so whatever trials or tribulations you might face, whatever tests of trust come your way, you can look to this God. You can cling to this God. You can cling to His promises. There's nothing more reasonable than remaining faithful to this God. Because this is a God who can raise the dead. Let's pray together. O great Father in heaven, Father of a multitude, Father in whose Son all the nations are blessed, Father of the promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ who came to crush the skull of the serpent. O great Father, give us grace that we might trust You, that we might fear You, that we might love for You and live for You. Help us to laugh, to rejoice, to Isaac together because You've given us the ultimate Isaac, the final Isaac, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. May He fill us with joy. May His death and resurrection fill us with laughter today and always. For You, O Father, have made provision for us. May we cling to Your promises. May we cling to Your Son, the One who was crucified and who has now been raised for us, the one in whom all of your promises are yes and amen, the one in whom all of your purposes are fulfilled. This we pray. Amen.